It's the Beer Vana Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and in Vancouver, Washington that is, uh, at KXRW, or available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I am Patrick Emerson, Professor of Economics at Oregon State University, and with me as always is Jeff Allworth, author of several books, including The Beer Bible. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. Vancouver, Washington, man. I know. Who Our knew? footprint expands. Uh, apparently, people in Vancouver knew because they were listening to us this whole time. Across state lines. Yeah, we had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we, when we have always promised the listener that we're half-assing this, we weren't lying. Yeah. That was not false. We're kind of like a, a mold that just keeps growing if you don't <laughs> bleach it out or something. That's right. So, welcome, Vancouver, to our uh, show. Or... or, or well, you can welcome us to the show that you have been listening to, apparently. Indeed. Yeah. It's awesome. Indeed you can. Uh, how have you been? How have I been? I've been okay. Uh, I haven't been sleeping well. That's bad. Yeah, this is a, a deep cut the reader, or the listener does not care about. Yeah, well, they might learn as you fall asleep in the middle of the podcast. or That's right. Or your mind wanders. Or... <laughs> it's, it's, it's valuable to that extent. Um, I don't know. It's been a, it's been a nice summer. Uh, we've had a couple hot snaps. It hasn't actually been that bad. Um, I've, I've been enjoying myself. Um, yeah, it's so. not too bad. I'm just back from the deep woods. Yeah, you you've been traveling like crazy. I've this has yeah, been it's my been a little too hectic. This my, summer, my time honestly. of no travel. But you 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 yeah. were. Well, it's summertime. It's Oregon. You go off to the mountains and you camp. Uh, if you're my family, so we did that. Uh, are you like in tents or are you glamping or are you in a cabin? What are you doing? Uh, we're in tent. We're car camping. So at a campsite, at an established campsite. Um, in this case, you know, pit toilets, but running water and, and uh, you know, driving up to the campsite, pitching tents. Uh, cooler be- full of beer and weenies. Because I'm <laughs> cooler full of beer and weenies. Uh, by a lake. So mm-hmm. with like our little inflatable paddle boards and stuff and it's a beautiful lake. This is Lost Lake, by the way, um, on Mount Hood. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, yeah, uh, my, my, my one big concession to being old was that I bought a, like a cot slash inflatable bed thing. So now I'm off the ground and in on an air mattress. Absolutely. And that's the way to go. <laughs> Laying on those rocks. I got tired. Of, yeah, I'm tired of not being able to move for an hour when I got up because my body was so stiff and sore. <laughs> so there's, you know, there's camping and then there's a little treating yourself a little bit better. Um, far, but, far from like back, backwoods backpacking. Yes. But you're not in a, like a luxury yurt with power and all no, that. No, I would be. That sounds good to me. In fact, why not just build some walls and uh, give me a TV and some room service and that's even better. But, uh, no, I'm kind of joking. Uh, it was really cold at night, though. That was the, you know, it is the mountain, and so it does tend to get cold, but man, really cold, like 40 degrees, and that, I'm not used to that. It's been quite warm this summer, so. It's true. Uh, but beautiful, beautiful. Always makes me realize this is, you know, two hours away, so always makes me I know. feel how fortunate I am to live in this part of the world, not just because of the beer. Exactly. But also because of other things. <laughs> yes. Come for other things, stay for the beer. Yeah. Well, we should probably uh, cut short our chit-chat today because uh, we've got a fascinating uh, interview coming up. Though many Americans may not realize it, Scotland is one of the world's great old brewing countries. Even if you have heard of 80 shilling ales and wee heavies, uh, you may not be familiar with the vat aging tradition Gareth Young mines at... Uh, still, it's still inconclusive. Uh, epochal. 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 Yeah. E- uh, epochal. I, mean, I can't do it. The, the Scottish. Epochal. Uh, ales in Glasgow. Uh, let me try that again. Epochal ales in Glasgow. Drawing on archival records, Young is bringing attention to beers like stock ale and Glasgow Porter. Glasgow. I, look at what I did. <laughs> uh, we will be speaking. Good thing Gareth's not online yet. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we will be speaking with Gareth today. Say. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But first, the news. A recent report from large retail firm IRI revealed interesting patterns in the way people are eating and drinking in 2022. Uh, perhaps most shocking was this fact. Before COVID, people were preparing only 48% of their meals at home. Today, they prepare 78% at home. Uh, Meanwhile, beer consumption in pubs and restaurants 
continues to rebound post-COVID, but it's still down about a quarter from pre-COVID levels. That, that's interesting. That's shocking. That doesn't make sense to me. I, in fact, my, my uh, casual observation, because anecdotes are even better than data, uh, <laughs> is, that, <laughs> is that people are just doing so much takeout. That's what I... And in fact, I just read an article. Uh, Maybe no. they're con- are they counting that as preparing at home because they're eating at home? I don't know. That's no. a whole. That's they a wrinkle. Shouldn't. Yeah. And then what do you say? Like if you do one of those meal service, like the things where you get a kit and then you just throw it together and cook it. I guess that's preparing at home. That would count. But um, well, I'm, I, I assume these are self reports. So who knows what the hell no. people are saying? Uh, I, I I was about to say I read an article. I really didn't. I actually glanced at an article that was talking about how restaurants are. Um, uh, being able to uh, to provide a meal because of, because of wholesale costs and scale economies uh, cheaper than you could buy prepare if you went to the store and bought the ingredients yourselves and so in this day and age of high inflation commodity prices and stuff um, they're talking about how a restaurant might actually be a, a a value proposition huh I don't know if that's true but some restaurants I I suppose. Well, I will tell you that my little taco shop over there, Olay Olay, mm-hmm. uh, still has tacos at two seventy five a pop. Which every time I go over there, I and they were going up for quite a while. Uh, yeah. they, they were two bucks maybe five years ago, and they're yeah. up to two seventy five. They're going up a quarter, and I keep waiting for them to go up to three, which is actually pretty common in the city. But it's still quite a value uh, deal. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe maybe that's true. But I, yeah, that's. I mean, it's definitely true that. Uh, I think supply and demand. Demand dropped for obviously in person restaurant meals and then of course that meant the supply of restaurants dropped and i don't know what's leading this right now if it's just the lack of restaurants or if it's the lack of demand um but i'm still surprised at these numbers yeah i i'm surprised at them too but it does really i mean it to the to the extent when i go to restaurants that i used to think of as having long lines out the door yes. and i can wander right in it it definitely reconciles with that part yeah it's just my my take that i just See a lot of people sort of gotten really used to takeout mm-hmm. um, and delivery services and things like that. But anyway, interesting. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad to see that beer consumption um, is rebounding uh, in pubs and restaurants, like in situ beer consumption. That's good. It is. Um, it's still down from pre-COVID, so that's an issue, but yeah. getting better. So it sounds like, <laughs> based on this, it sounds like better than restaurants, maybe. So. Yeah. All right, well, uh, we have a, a special treat for you in a fairly lengthy interview with uh, Gareth Young of uh, Apocal uh, uh, <laughs> Brewing in uh, Glasgow. So uh, shall we get right to it? Anything we need to say before we start? Uh, one thing is that I know, I know how you say uh, bitterness in Scottish now. I was really fascinated by it. Which is? Betterness. <laughs> betterness. <laughs> well, very good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's it's a delightful conversation. I think you'll really enjoy it. All right, here we go. In 2015, Gareth Young earned a PhD in philosophy and became a lecturer at the University of Glasgow. In his spare time, he was also homebrewing, a hobby that was quickly attracting more and more of his attention. He was getting really good at it and at one point earned 5,000 pounds by winning the UK National Homebrew Award. Kudos. Meanwhile, feeling increasingly disillusioned with academia, can't understand why that would be, uh, <laughs> Gareth decided to start a brewery instead. Uh, it's my dream. Uh, last year, he launched, uh, is it Epical Brewing? Uh, which focuses on the lost art of barrel aging Scottish ales. Thank you, Gareth, for joining us. And nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me. By the way, how do you pronounce your brewery? It's, it's, uh, I would say Epical. Um, Epical. But uh, that, that's the first time I've heard of Epical. But I, I, I think <laughs> that, that is the, that's the American uh American English pronunciation of the word. Yeah, we were joking before that we were going to give you the West Coast U.S. pronunciation yeah. and see how you see how you liked it. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I don't I don't mind how it gets pronounced. I think when you pick it up, really as long really as you remember. To, yeah, you just have to let people go with what feels right. So yeah, yeah. So as a little background for the podcast listeners, uh, Gareth and I have had some interaction because I was writing an article for Craft Beer and Brewing about. Uh, stock ales, uh, old ales and barley wines, but particularly barrel aged ones. And um, because I have an eclectic group of people that I follow on Twitter and I follow people who follow eclectic group, uh, I was tipped off that Gareth has started this interesting project 
uh, in Scotland doing barrel aging, fat aging beer. Um, but it's a little different than English brewing. It, and that was interesting to me. Uh, you know, we, we know something about English stock ales um, and how, how they were made and what kind of beers they made. But you are doing, you, you, one thing that you really intrigued me with was this uh, thing called Glasgow Porter, which we'll talk about a little bit down the road, um, yep. but also uh, table beers that are barrel aged, which is very interesting. So why don't we, um, let's go back just before we get deep into this, why don't we go back just to hair and, and, and ask, uh, how did you, how did you learn about all this stuff and, and what inspired you about these old beer styles? Yeah, um, I suppose, so I, I started getting into Belgian beer quite early, I think, in brewing. That was one of the things I, I brewed a lot of to begin with. And I went on, a, I suppose, a sort of familiar journey um, where I became interested in fermentation character. And inevitably, that leads to fermenting with alternative microbes, uh, bretonomyces and, and things like that. Uh, and I started brewing a lot of, um, I suppose you would call mixed fermentation saisons, lambic-inspired sour beers, uh, Flemish sour ale type things. Um, I got very interested in all of that, and that, that became eventually the only thing I was brewing. I was sort of only doing these mixed, mixed fermentation beers. Um, and again, I suppose a common progression is to become interested in sense of place when, when you get into these styles. People often become, uh, there's, there's something about those processes that people, I think, find naturally fits with an interest in place. Uh, and so I became interested in that and, and became interested in place in a slightly more general way. So I, I tend not to talk about terroir. I, I, I don't really like that notion. Um, and to me, sense of place involves a whole bunch of different things. And I became sort of conscious that I wasn't, uh, a farmer, or it felt weird saying farmhouse ale um, when I was talking about the kind of beers I was making in a flat in the centre of Glasgow. Um, and I, I, I was interested in, in historical stuff to some degree, but, but became just increasingly interested in the, the history of making wood-aged funky beer in the UK and then stumbled more across the Scottish tradition of doing it and then just sort of fell down a rabbit hole a little bit um, with that stuff and uh, the more I found out the more captivating I found it and the more the more sort of I felt a real strong a really strong sense of just it clicking with me um, the fact that these people were people making these funky beers were brewers they weren't farmers you know they, they did it as their job and they were interested in brewing signs which I've always been very interested in um, they were based in Glasgow or Edinburgh, you know, they, they were city people. And just being able to make a drink that had a real sense of place, a real tradition to it, that wasn't this kind of pastoral sort of thing that we kind of um, do when we make these beers in the Belgian tradition. So um, that was what led me to all that stuff. And then I guess I just have a tendency to get quite obsessive and quite, um, I tend to just, my first inclination is to read lots about things when I become interested in them. And so I started reading a lot of brewing textbooks. Um, I'd been dipping in and out of the Scottish Brewing Archive, which is based at University of Glasgow, which is where I was working at the time. So I had kind of very convenient access to, um, to that. And, and that, that, that's just an amazing record. Like there's actual handwritten brew sheets there from the early 1800s from William Younger, you know, these guys who were like the sort of Scottish hill farmstead of paleo brewing and you can read these sort of things that they wrote in, in this beautiful calligraphy handwriting, it's sort of very inspiring stuff to look at and hold in your hands um, so uh, that and, and brewing textbooks which I find interesting in a different way brewing records are records of what actually happened brewing Textbooks are these as a kind of capturing of what brewers told each other about what was the best practice and why. So they're, they're interesting things to read sort of side by side. And um, I ended up just reading as many brewing textbooks as I could 
The first one was 1758, arguably Michael Combrun, um, all the way through. I like I, I like the modern ones too. I read my Kunza and all that stuff, um, but putting together all the brewing textbooks from the UK and elsewhere um, and trying to read as many as possible in succession was sort of a, a lockdown project as well. Um, so, um, yeah, I suppose it's, been, it's just been a slow evolution of ideas uh, that led me through a combined interest in fermentation character, especially oak fermentation character and sense of place. Those are really the two ideas that drive the brewery, I would say. Yeah, and I think the uh, the fact that you're working with brewing te- tech uh, textbooks uh, as opposed to just brew logs is important because uh, brew logs are real shorthand, so they don't tell you about process. Um, yeah. So you know, you you in our emails, you were telling me some really fascinating stuff about process that I think uh, shows more than what those old brewers were doing with their calligraphy. Um, and one of the yeah. things you discovered, uh, which you've sent us some beer. So what we always do on the program is, is drink some beer. Uh, one of the, one of the books you discovered was James Steele's, uh, book, uh, yeah. and, and people may know, uh, Steele. Well, probably it's a, it's a little bit of a deep cut, but an old piece of Victorian equipment is called the Steele's masher. And it was an early piece of equipment that allowed, uh, malt and water to come in the mash tun at the same time, which is of course now standard. So he was the guy, the, I don't know if he was a brewing engineer or a brewer or what, but um, you found his, yeah. his book, uh, which, which talked about a thing that I'd never heard of. I was instantly uh, really magnetized by it called Glasgow Porter, uh, a, yeah. a porter that was native to your hometown. Uh, and you make one called the fixed stars, which I got here yeah. in my, my hands, which you've sent me all the way from Glasgow. So th- thank you for that. So let me let me pour this out, and you can talk about uh, Glasgow Porter. I would love to hear something about that as a way of kind of getting into this whole thing. Yeah. Um, so James Steele was a brewer and an engineer. Um, he grew up in his father's brewery uh, and learned about engineering while he was doing it. And he invented a number of influential things. He invented a train brake that was very widely used at the time. Um, and he invented the Steele's Masher, which you can still find in breweries and distilleries now. Um, so he was a very sort of talented guy, arguably the top Scottish porter brewer at the time. And he sort of fell on hard times and, and ended up writing this textbook as part of that. And he's a very, very technical brewer because of his engineering background. And so the book just has this incredible detail um, about exactly how he made porter, right down to technical drawings for brewing equipment. Um, of his own design. So things like um, a mash tun for making porter where you mash the black malt separately from the pale Mm. um, because you can sell spent pale malt for more than you can sell the darker stuff. So you get more money for your spent grain if you you do it separately. And apparently this saved them £10,000 a year, which is quite a lot in the 1850s. Yeah, Uh, brewers are always thrifty. That's behind a lot of that stuff. Yeah, another, my favourite one, uh, favourite of his inventions he, designed, he describes in the book is, so he was convinced that London Porter at the time uh, got its characteristic flavour from the sheer, or part of its characteristic flavour from the sheer size of the boil kettles. They were so large that the weight, the hydrostatic pressure raised the boiling point to between 107 and 110 degrees centigrade. And that you get what we would now call, I suppose, different mild reactions, different kinds of colouring reactions in the boil. Um, and he thought that this was essential to get in the foam to come out the right colour, to get the flavours right. Um, mm. But his boil kettle was too small. It was a, a mere 10,000 litres, which is actually <laughs> kind of a lot to little brewers like me. But um, he t- designs a 10,000 litre pressure cooker um, for boiling uh, porter at very high temperatures, um, so so lo- loads of interesting technical stuff. Um, but uh, Gla- so Glasgow has a very long tradition of making porter that goes all the way back to the earlier days of the style. Um, people usually associate porter with London and Dublin, um, but actually Glasgow sort of lands in between those two cities. So the porter story kind of goes London, Glasgow, Dublin, um, and. The reason for that, in part, was that Dublin, there were anti-Irish taxation laws, which uh, 
disincentivized porter brewing in the city. So you had one of these uh, industrial cities where there's a lot of demand for porter because that's what people wanted to drink, um, but no local competition, which is kind of the dream for exporters. Uh, so people in London and Glasgow were exporting porter to Dublin, making lots of money. Um, so the the industry sort of uh, developed in Glasgow um, over the course of the sort of second half of the 1700s into the early 1800s. Um, and then James Steele, uh, who was kind of, his career sort of peaked in the mid-1800s. Um, and, and it's his work that that beer you're drinking is sort of based on. Uh, there are a few distinctive things about it. One is recipe-wise, it looks absolutely bananas. It's forty-five percent amber malt, mm. um, which is a lot, a lot more than people say you're supposed to use. But uh, yeah. to me, the the interesting thing about that is that um, if you brew with lots of bread and barrel aging, uh, you notice that it destroys malt flavour. Um, you know, if you look at like Rodenbach or something. Um, those are beers where the, a lot of these Flemish red style beers have a lot of malt in them to begin with, but by the time you drink them often, they're mostly just, uh, that a lot of that malt flavour is, is gone. But with these roasted malts like amber brown black malt, that, that happens to a lesser degree. And if you use a lot of them, then you can really, you can really ferment these with bread for a long time and still have a lot of residual malt flavour left in the finished beer. So to me, one of the things I like about that beer is that there's a really clear kind of biscuity, dark malt uh, character to it that comes from the very large amber edition. Um, yeah, that was the first thing that stood out to me. I'm just trying it now as well. Uh, is that in a lot of these porters, you just get the the residual roast on the mouth, uh, but this one really has that rich biscuity mouth feel and and flavor from the malt. Yeah, it's lovely. <clears throat> it has a, another thing. Is that, sorry, uh, uh, yeah. It has a really, just to comment on the, the beer, it has a really unusual flavor as well and aroma. Um, yeah. The, you, you immediately, when we poured it out, I immediately smelled the bread, um, but you can smell the roast pretty prominently in, in the, the nose, especially as the bread kind of blows off, uh, which is pretty unusual. You know, we don't, we don't encounter too many beer, black beers with bread. And even when we do, it seems like they've chewed up a lot of that, that roast nose. But then interestingly, on the palate, it's quite clean. Um, the yeah. bread just sort of presents as a little bit of acidity, which complements that roast really well, because roast is itself kind of acidic. So you get uh, a, you know, a beer that, that tastes, and this thing is like 6%, so it's not a super, it's not you know, what we would think of as the old London porters at 10% or something. Um, so it's a very palatable uh, and not super bread uh, flavored beer. Uh, I was quite yeah. surprised by that. It's got a lot of berry. I don't know if you're using a, which Brett strain you're using, but it's a quite a fruity, dark fruit, berry Brett strain, which works super yeah. well for dark malts. Yeah, I think to me, when it comes to funky porters, one of the things I think is, it's good to have Brett in there. It's good to have a little bit of acetic acid, um, but you want to keep a handle on the lactic acid because I think when porters get that proper sour lactic way, they, they kind of don't taste so nice. So I, I think going for that fermentation complexity, a little bit of aromatic acid, but not necessarily loads of acidity on the palate. It kind of comes off a little bit cleaner and maybe seems a bit less uh, funky. Um, another, that's actually another thing about the, the style. So he was into porters that were very well attenuated. Uh, They're supposed to be dry. Uh, he described it and, and highly carbonated. He said it was supposed to have a gaseous and refreshing quality. Um, so you're supposed to be able to drink these on a, a hot day. Um, and he would, so the, the, the classic London Porter blend was a third very old beer, a third 18-month-old beer, and the rest completely unaged beer, um, whereas um, the Glasgow one, Ala James Steele, he was using about 85% uh, mature attenuated beer, but but not like 18 months old. You know, in this case, he recommended about six months. Um, yeah. So it's a more, it's attenuated, maybe not quite as acidic, quite lean uh, sort of style. Uh, I, I, I see it as. Yeah. 
so that's another another reason why it's not super bretty. If you're if you're following that prescription, um, you haven't let it sit there for three years and get all goatee and weird. <laughs> yeah, although actually I think that's partly process as well. And um, so maybe this leads into what you were saying. You were yeah. asking before or talk, talking before about cleansing. Um, the Victorian brewers were absolutely obsessed with cleansing. They would. They would have a separate chapter on it in most brewing textbooks, so you would get fermentation and then cleansing. And it's not even a word that we really use anymore, uh, but it just means removal of yeast, uh, removal, removal of yeast from primary fermentation from the beer. Um, so we filter in things now, or plenty of breweries filter now, uh, but in the past they had these whole fermentation systems that were set up in order to minimise the amount of yeast carried over. Um, so what we often think of as fermentation systems are often really cleansing systems like uh, Burton Unions and all these double drop systems where they're letting the beer drop down a level in the brewery and everything. Um, it's often about settling out yeast. And they talk about why that is. Uh, they, they say that if you don't do it, it leads to kind of dirty flavours, it's damaging to the foam on the beer, um, it has all these bad consequences and, and, and they become, it's, it's, a, it's a major deal when it comes to making this funky wood-aged beer. Um, but now we know something about what exactly happens if that if you do get this yeast carryover uh, and it's connected primarily to autolysis. Um, so the, the Saccharomyces will start dying um, and releasing things like caprylic acid, which smells like goats, and that will get esterized into ethyl caprylate, which um, is quite waxy, quite dull. Um, and it's something that is present, I think, in the sour funky beers that often is, sometimes you want to describe them as being a wee bit dirty somehow. And I think that they're often quite caprylic in that sense. So I think following that kind of process leads to slightly cleaner fermentation character. And it, and it is something you still see in a few breweries nowadays where they do. So I, I remember um, a podcast with Lauren Salazar uh, talking about this, saying that they filter um, their beer for La Folie before secondary fermentation, specifically to minimise this kind of caprylic and aut autolytic uh, funk where you get all these flavours that come out of um, the, the dying of, of the primary yeast and the, the things that Brett will do to that. Um, I mean, completely filtering it is a very aggressive way of suppressing that, that character. So you, you can let do it more gently, let a little bit get through, and then you can get these little sort of threshold level bits of complexity without the, the full goatee pong. Um, so I, I, I think that some of these old techniques for just gently separating yeast are often are interesting and worth worth revisiting. You, in, an e in the emails that we traded, you, you wrote this and I thought it was really striking, especially at the end of the 19th century, these guys were serious professional brewers working in large international businesses, often solely focused on making high quality wood aged funk. The best of these people were much more sophisticated wood aging than we are now, it would seem to me. And yeah. you're talking about some of these, these techniques. I mean, this was a lost art, right? So uh, when people started yeah. using retinomyces 20 years ago, there'd been a hundred year gap, uh, you know, in most traditions. Um, and the Belgians were doing a, a kind of primitive pre-industrial brewing with this stuff. So you found these guys who were doing state-of-the-art stuff right at the moment that it was starting to die off. Um, yeah. And tell, talk a little bit about some of the other stuff they were doing. Like um, you mentioned sulfur candles, which I'd never heard about. Uh, and and yeah. we'll get to the, the fermentation process itself, which is fascinating. Well, what, what are these sulfur candles? So sulfur is um, a very powerful antioxidant and the common way of applying it to the inside of an old barrel is to burn a sulfur candle inside the barrel, um, which serves a sort of dual purpose of one, coating the inside of the barrel with a powerful antioxidant, and two, burning up oxygen that's inside the barrel. Um, and, and this is this is common to, to brewing and to winemaking. Sulfur's been used in winemaking um, since the Roman times, and it was it was very heavily used in brewing in the UK in the 1800s, um, especially because they noticed the impact that it had on beer colour and on certain kinds of freshness. Um, they, were, they were aware of the impact of oxygen on pale ales and tried to minimise it. 
I mean, they, they, they said air, um, not, they didn't realize it was oxygen, but they knew that air damaged paleos. Um, and so it's a way of managing that. Actually, James Steele has an interesting uh, section in his book where he explicitly draws a distinction between porter processes and paleo processes along these lines. Um, so back then, paleos were aged in trade casks. So the, the actual cask that you would send out to a pub is where the aging would take place. So you would just keep it, it'd be a, it'd be a hogshead probably, sort of 250 litres-ish um, that you would keep in the brewery, age it there when it's done, send it out. Um, porters, on the other hand, at least the sort of classical process, uh, they would be vatted, so they would be transferred into a large vat, aged there, and then clear beer would be transferred from there into trade casks. So there's an extra transfer with porter, with porter because there's an extra vessel kind of in between the brewery and the trade cask. Uh, and it was to minute, because every time you transfer, you pick up oxygen, um, certainly back then. Aging pale ale and trade cask was specifically to cut out oxygen pickup. And what Steele says in his book is, if you're making pale ales, treat the cask with a sulfur candle and put the beer straight into it after cleansing. If you are making porter, put it into a vat and then transfer it into a trade cask and don't sulfur the barrel because a bit of air is good. Um, so they're actually deliberately trying to get a bit of oxygen pickup in their porters and deliberately trying to suppress it in their paleos um, mm. because of the different uh, impacts that it has on the beer. Would the, the sulfur that was the residue, the, the sulfur residue inside the barrels, would it uh, go into the beer at, at, at a noticeable level? Would sulfur, would sulfur have been uh, a, a flavor and aroma compound of these beers? Yeah, I, th I think it often would have. It would have gone up and down. Um, so sulfur is not just used in the barrels, it's used in the drying of hops um, to preserve their, stop their oxidizing, to preserve their color and freshness. Um, it's sometimes added, there were patented products for adding sulfur uh, to the mash and to the boil in the 1800s as well for pale ales to really preserve the pale color. They called it bleaching. They thought it would bleach the color of the pale ale, but it's, it's, it's just um, lack of oxidative stuff that's happening. Um, but once you've done all that, I mean, if you're aging the beer in barrels, the oxygen will slowly kind of do away with that sulfur. Um, so exactly how much sulfur you get in the finished article will depend on how much you added, uh, how long the beer's been aged and all that kind of thing. Um, but it's pretty well documented that um, Burton pale ales, for example, were, were pretty sulfurous. That's the classic Burton taste is palate scraping bitterness and, and sulfur. Um, and sometimes people might want to age that off or sometimes not. Little bits of sulfur are nice, I think, if it's there's lots of laggers where a little bit of sulfur is good. Um, a funky yeah. pale ale, tiny bits okay, I think. Some of the listeners will have heard Patrick and I talk about this, but we went to Burton together uh, 10 years ago and... Um, we tried, um, oh, I'm not going to remember the name of it, a traditional Burton brewery, uh, and we got the Burton Snatch. And it shocked us that it's the, it's it, it, what is it, the hydrogen sulfide? Is that the one that's the rotten egg as opposed to the sulfite, which is the burned match quality? Um, so, yeah. yeah, we got that really hardcore uh egg thing and that was that's a that's a whole different ball game than uh yeah that's the, that's, that's a bit much um <laughs> it's something else you see one of the, the really great old breweries in, in england is harvey's brewery um down in lewis and they've been repitching their house sacrifices for 70 years now i think just um, mm. scooping into the next batch and that's part, part of their house culture character is a nice little bit of sulfur. And sometimes you'll have a beer from them and sort of pushing it a bit. Um, but some, sometimes it'll be just a little bit and it's sort of, it's perfect. So I'm, I'm sure there'll be, I'm sure historically there have been lots of variations and people would have different tastes from how much of that kind of character they liked. That's right. Well, since you mentioned Harvey's, which is also not a pure culture, uh, you talk a little bit about... Uh, the the yeast cultures that British brewers would have been using in the 19th and century and before um, and how they wouldn't have been using pure cultures. Uh, 
Yeah. And so I'd like to talk about that. But before we do that, I and my glass is empty. So I think we should grab another one of your beers. We, you had mentioned, um, you tend to have very poetic names. It's not at all <laughs> that you were a university professor. I think you'd mentioned the Prince of Cloud and Sky at one time. You, but you also have one of these uh, the uh, stock ale, or I'm so I'm sorry, uh, table beers, which I'm also of course. Oh yeah. So I don't know which one should should, should I go for this one or which one should I go? For? Um, if you're gonna do go go for the table beer first, then maybe. All right. That is, you're gonna have to say it out loud because An no, angle trisector. Oh yeah, sorry, I grabbed the wrong one. Actually, I have the, the fourth one. We probably won't try today, but I don't know how to pronounce it. But you can pronounce it for us. Uh, Gavagai. Another guy. All right. <laughs> All right. So here we have angle trisector, which is four and a half percent. And it's a and it's a table beer, uh, yep. which is barrel aged, which sort of yep. violates everything I understand about British barrel aged beers. You know, um, what I've read and and the information we pass back and forth is that uh, stock ales were always very strong. So this is unusual. Oh, right, OK. Yeah. So, uh, so, so to, to me, the way I use the word stock beer is just um, the beer has been aged in oak with retinomyces. Um, so if that, as, long, as long as that's happened, uh, it's a stock beer. So a stock table beer then would just be a table beer aged in oak with breath. Um, and I've always loved sort of low gravity, funky beers and brewed a lot of them. Um, but it was more recent that I discovered that actually this is a really Scottish thing. Yeah, and in a, in a in a way, it's unusual because, like, when you think about what a table beer is, typically those are beers that would be they're made everywhere that makes beer. Insofar as they're just low alcohol um, beers for everyday drinking, and people would typically brew them quickly and consume them quickly, um, you wouldn't bother aging one because aging is expensive. Aging typically comes with heavy. Hopping and hops are expensive. So heavily hopped aged table beers, from that perspective, don't make a lot of sense and very few places brewed them. Scotland's the only exception I know of because the Scottish brewing market was extremely uh, export driven, mm-hmm. um, partly because Scotland had a very good university system. A lot of engineering was happening in Scotland, um, a big part of the industrial revolution, but also a very small population. So you find, so if you wanted to set up a big business, you had to export a lot of what you did. And so Scottish brewers made loads of table beers and exported them to mainland Europe. So you can find adverts in Dutch newspapers for like, not just Scottish table beer, but like Alloa table beer, Edinburgh table beer. So people had a regional understanding of Scottish beer. Um, and so and, and those beers were heavily hopped and the exporting involves time. And so those are wood-aged, funky, low-gravity table beers. Um, and they would often involve old land-race malts, especially bare barley. Uh, for, for pale ales, for full-strength pale ales, there was a move towards um, more efficient varieties like Chevalier, which we now view as a sort of old... Old variety, but back then that was the sort of hot new variety. Um, but beer you would find in in Scottish table beers, and so it felt fitting to use uh, Scotch common, uh, which is a the barley that's an angle trisector. Uh, that is a, another old Scottish land race um, that I've been working with. Um, so it's a, that beer is a combination of um, Scotch common. So it's a smash beer. It's one malt, one hop. Uh, the hop is earnest. Uh, which is an old, um, doesn't smell old, smells very new and fruity and passion fruity yeah. and stuff, but that, that hop was bred yeah. in, in 1920, if you can believe it, um, wow. by Ernest Salmon, who's the guy who bred Brewer's Gold, Brown Cross, uh, Bullion. And all those hops, to me, have, a, have, a, have something in common, a slightly kind of whiny sort of note, and he got that from breeding... Uh, a wild Manitoban hop with English stock. And um, he was kind of the first guy, I think, to come up with code names for hops. So people before that were very unsystematic. And he had this idea that he would plant um, fields and rows and columns, give them code names to identify a location, pollinate a plant, bag it, so that you wouldn't get cross-pollination 
grow to plants and test their different properties. And so he, he bred loads of hops this way and some were really influential uh, and some of them weren't. And actually this one, Ernest, only received that name in 2016 uh, because before that it was just in the kind of archives. Um, it went on. It underwent breeding trials in the 50s and was, uh, was found to be coarse. Uh, and they used the word American in a sort of disparaging way. Um, oh, funny. yeah. Um, We're aware that hasn't changed. <laughs> that hasn't changed. <laughs> yeah. So the, um, that, that, that they wanted more noble hop character in, the, in their beers, but obviously we've now changed their minds about that. And this farm in Kent went digging for old varieties, found this one, were blown away by the character of it and started regrowing it and called it Ernest um, in, after Ernest Salmon. And I, I got a sample from them and just instantly was very, found it a very, very striking hop. It's got a lot of that fruit, but also a real earthy, spicy, sort of Kentish character. Works really well as a single hop, actually, because it's got that full kind of range of the sort of top, mid and the bass notes. And um, so, yeah, it felt like a nice one to showcase with, uh, with that malt. Um, the malt actually has a lot of beta looking in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a nice there's a nice mouthfeel uh, from that hop it's a very dry very low gravity um, beer but yeah yeah it's an amazing beer uh, in that it tastes incredibly uh, modern you know it yeah. does, it, it's uh, those hops really present I think almost more like uh, southern New World hops maybe New Zealand or Australia yeah uh, very, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, and the 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 way they work with the retinoiaces is you know creates this very I don't know modern palette. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been trying to sell the hop as like English rolaca. Yeah, um, and it, it, it doesn't have that kind of planty sort of grassy thing that rolaca has got, but it's definitely got the the sort of punch and and also I like uh, I quite like low alpha hops um, because I like to add a lot of hops in the boil I think the, the bitterness that you get from that and the, there's a way the beer goes if you do it that way that I like and that's one of the reasons I like Ruaka actually is that it's, it's fairly low um, fairly low alpha fairly delicate and this one's six as well six percent typically uh, something in that region this, this, this beer is incredibly carbonated and it and it and it gives it a, a champagne like um F, you know, effervescence, but not in the sense of carbonation, but like it just, it, it effervesces, uh, flavor, yeah. effervescent flavor almost, which works with those. You've got all these, these top notes, you've got the Brett, which is very, you know, spiky. And then you've got the, these, these hops, which taste very modern and it's very fruity. And then you've got all this carbonation. It's, it's a very vibrant, modern tasting beer in that sense. It's not the kind of thing like so many, uh, when Americans make old British beers, um, they tend to make those kinds of beers that are like uh, Burton's, which are, you know, finishing gravities of six Play-Doh, <laughs> you know, just tremendously sweet, like gummy, gluey things. Um, this yeah. is not like that at all. And, and I know in our emails, you mentioned that carbonation was a big deal and this kind of really vibrant carbonation. Uh, talk a little yeah. bit about that, because when we talk about English stock ales, we tend to talk about them being stale, still totally, you know, not effervescent. Yeah. What's what's going on here? Yeah, there's a tendency to think of British beers, beers being flat, often because of the way cask beer tends to be served. When it's served badly, I mean, good cask beer, I think, should be kind of lively, but um, it's often a bit, a bit flat. Um, but historically, those beers were famous for being very highly carbonated. Um, and it's, it's actually it's funny it's mentioned everywhere but I think that the source of the confusion is that people don't know what condition means mm. um, people they, they see so you, you often see brewers now saying oh yeah we conditioned this beer on plums and I think no you didn't because <laughs> um, c- condition means carbonated at least in the old usage of the word um, so bottle condition doesn't mean bottle aged it means carbonated in the bottle by fermentation. Um, and when you bear that in mind, if you look at uh, 
old articles or old brewing books talk of highly conditioned or well conditioned beer is all over the place. Um, and in fact, the famous paper uh, from 1904 where Clausen names Brettanomyces. Um, so that, I mean, I say famous, it's, it's well known. In, in kind of funk circles and things, people who, who are interested in Brett. This is, this is the um, crowd who are going to know what you're talking about. So it's famous. They, they'll all know, yeah, good, good stuff. <laughs> um, in the title of that paper, I forget the title, but it's something about um, the, 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 the use of the microbe in well-conditioned English stockyards. Mm. Um, and that doesn't mean well-aged, it means highly carbonated. Uh, so so they, they, they talk all the time about how important foam is and how you need lots of foam. Um, they, they actually, they, they think that Brett is foam positive. They often talk about that. They say things like copious and lasting foam is associated with this microbe. And I think it's to do with the secondary. That's where the, all the carbonation comes from and carbonation is foam positive. So I think that's what is happening there. But but like high, high carbonation is a, a big thing. Um, in part, it comes from the... The success of a lot of these beers came from their ability to be exported. Um, they were, yeah, um, they were sent all over the world and managed to arrive in good condition, which is not very easy in the 1800s, where the kind of journeys we're talking about might be six months on a wooden ship. So right. beer from a lot of places would arrive flat, oxidized, kind of darker than it should be, not tasting good. Um, whereas British beer had the ability to arise, uh, to spend six months on a ship from, from Scotland to India and arrive in perfect condition, very highly carbonated. Um, and so that, that's one of the things that became associated with. And that was through this Brett fermentation and also through hop creep um, combined. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the way hops play a role in these beers, which is, I think, for modern drinkers and brewers, perhaps the most enlightening thing that you wrote to me was it was really shocking um, how hops in the barrel uh, were common and also how brewers understood those. And I and I feel like uh, this this uh, angle trisector that we have the the, the table beer that may I, I, maybe you didn't make it this way, but it demonstrates to me. Uh, possibly that modern kind of quality that you get from the way hops are used. So did they know yeah. about that 150 years ago? <clears throat> yeah. Um, I mean, actually, the, the, when you say modern flavors, one thing I was going to mention is that you often find quite modern flavor descriptors uh, in old books. Their, their sensory descriptions are a little bit basic back then. That's come on a, a lot in the last 30 years, never mind the last 150. But they do talk about pineapples and, and things like that as being the, the the definitive aromas in these beers. So it sort of breaks some stereotypes to think of people wandering around Edinburgh drinking beers that smell of pineapples, but um, that's that, that's part of what, what people expected. Um, so they, they used hops to, to do a whole range of jobs. Um, bitterness, obviously, is, is, is one. Um, these beers were very dry, and I think a lot of bitterness, especially the kind you get from adding a lot of hops in the boil um, is important for building mouthfeel and giving you kind of structure uh, in the beer. So they added kind of what to us would be unbelievable quantities of hops to the boil. Um, that also helps suppress acidity. So controlling uh, how sour the beers get, you know, little bits of acid are okay, but they shouldn't be properly sour and hops can uh, obviously, they severely suppress lactobacillus, but they, they can suppress pediococcus as well. Um, and then uh, aroma uh, is, a, is a big part of why they use hops, and, and especially what happens with, um, with dry hopping, which for them, uh, so as I said, when you're aging these beers and trade casks, um, so the, the, the hops will go into the the trade cask and the beer will be filled up on top of them typically. So you're, you, the, the, the hopping and the, and the adding of the beer to the trade cask happens typically at the same time, which means that the beer is dry hopped for the entire duration of its aging, which could be well over a year. Mm -hmm. 
um, which sounds like it's another one of these things that sounds like madness to the modern ear, um, but which served a particular purpose back then. Um, one of which was hop creep. Um, so we uh, have become very aware of this now um, and think of it as a problem. And people often mention that it was first discovered in 1894, or at least the, the, the modern researchers are kind of aware of that. Um, but the, the context is different. You kind of wonder why, why were they worried that they weren't making new animal decades? So why were they talking about hop creep? And it was because it was viewed very differently and served a different purpose. It was very important back then. Um, hop creep was how you continued fermentation in the cask, how you ensured the beer carbonated, how you ensured that it dried out. Um, properly, and uh, that is uh, just sort of an important part of the process that went into making these beers and ensuring that they ended up uh, in good condition wherever they arrived. Um, there's actually there's a, a nice paper, I think from 1902, where a, a scientist does some testing where he steams some hops to check whether you still get hop creep. Mm. hypothesizing that you won't because the enzymes have been denatured. Yeah. And he uh, discovers that sure enough, if you steam the hops, no hop creep. Um, and the model of the story for him is, well, so you better not heat your hops up too much or you'll ruin the hop creep. Um, so that it was one of the key reasons for, for adding hops to beer was to encourage uh, further fermentation in, in the cask. And actually when you compare um, old hop processing to modern hop processing. Um, this is another sort of striking difference. We often think of old hops as being kind of bad, um, but actually if you go back to the 1800s, they were really good and they, they'd sort of dipped in the 20th century, but they were drying their hops way colder than we dry them now, um, which cold drying temperatures where hops are often positively associated with aroma, so that's a good thing, but um, they're also strongly associated with hop creep. Um, so one of the reasons hop creep appeared back in our radar was that we were dropping hop drying temperatures, destroying fewer of the enzymes and getting a bit more action. So nowadays we would <clears throat> typically dry our hops around 60 degrees centigrade or something like that would be a kind of pretty reasonable, pretty good um, modern hop drying temperature. They were shooting for just over 40 degrees centigrade back then. And some of them were saying that even that was a compromise they shouldn't be making, that they should be drying them at 27 degrees centigrade, which is sun drying, basically. Um, so, uh, sun drying up there in the northern man. Yeah, you can't sun dry in Scotland. No. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so like when you think about how much hot creep you're going to get from hops that are dried at 40 degrees centigrade and how much aroma, in case anyone is not familiar with what hop creep is, um, it's something that modern brewers uh, have discovered like in the last five or 10 years where the enzymes present in hops um, will further break down the malt uh, in beer uh, when it's added after fermentation. So then the yeast that's still present in the solution will uh, have new, newly digestible malt to uh, digest. And so it can lower the gravity, but also produce diacetyl and do some other stuff people don't like. So it's, it's fascinating that, you know, more than a hundred years ago, people not only understood that, but used it in, intentionally in the brewing process. Yeah. Uh, transformation is the process of when yeast uh, is interacting um, with doing its biochemistry thing, um, it's transforming the chemical compounds of hops and making them taste different. So Gareth, talk a little bit about how they knew that that was happening. Um, I mean, I don't know if they speak specifically about that interaction, just that you put the hops and the bread together in the barrel and you ferment them in the beer, you know, comes out with good taste. I, I, I don't know if they had a specific grasp on the idea that sure. flavours are created by by these by, by the, the, the yeast acting on the hops in, in any way. Um, but we, we know now that that there are all kinds of interactions happening there, like transformations of um, certain kinds of floral uh, aroma compounds. I think it's the, the tran transformation, I think, might be linalool to beta citronellol is one that's been studied. So that's 
kind of florally rose type aromas into citrus aromas. And Brett, in general, tests very highly on that specific transformation. And, and, and there are lots of other transformations. A lot of the science is still quite young and quite underdeveloped, but um, the more that goes on, the more we learn about the importance of this kind of fermentation for the way the beer turns out in the end. And I think that uh, from my experience, at least, there's no, there's no doubt that doing this kind of stuff, combining hops in unusual ways with quite complex active microbes, microbes that tend towards this kind of activity. And not just um, not just hops, one of the interesting um, things people have been talking about recently is the precursors for certain kinds of things like thiol aromas in malt and malted barley and how there are geographical and varietal differences there. So um, the ability for Brett to interact with that, I think we know more or less nothing about yet. So um, I think when you when you combine these interesting, unusual varieties with cool fermentation, um, a lot of interesting, complex stuff happens. Well, we uh, could talk to you a lot more about other stuff that you're doing there. Uh, you you have done a bunch, a bunch of research, but only been brewing for about a year. So in the next yeah. two or three or four or five decades, <laughs> you're going to learn a lot more. And we will uh, be curious to see uh, if you can catch up to what they were doing in the 1890s um, and let us know. What yeah. <laughs> um, we would love to talk to you some more and maybe we can do that in a future podcast, but we should probably cut this one short because we're running a little bit long here as I hoped we would be. I thought you might have a lot to say. I'm glad you did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Gareth Young, you are at Epochal Brewing. Um, your pronunciation may vary. In Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, yes. So for folks who are in the neighborhood, stop in. And uh, I think you're you're on uh, social media. You're on Twitter. Where, where can people find you if they want to learn more about your brewery? I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And I have a website, just epochal.co.uk. All right. Uh, we want to really thank you for joining us uh, and especially for sending this beer. We still have two bottles. We may have to drink those um, on the next podcast or sometime. We'll definitely drink them. You're right. They are. I can imagine now you said that thing about how that porter would go well on a hot day. And we've had a lot of hot days here. And I think you're right. So uh, yeah. we'll, we'll try your, your other beers on hot days, which we have plenty of now and see how they hold up. Yeah, nice one. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank you very much, Gareth. So much for joining us and uh, cheers. Good luck with this endeavor. Thanks. All right. Well, thanks again to Gareth Young of Epical Brewing <laughs> uh, uh, in Glasgow, Scotland, and apparently uh, coming to the U.S. Yes. Not clear exactly where it'll end up, but probably at least some in California. So wait, I think we got to say that because I think that was the the I think we talked it to him after I hit stop on recording he sent four pallets of ah. beer to a distributor importer in california mm-hmm. not sure where that beer is going to end up but um look for it here in the united states there's going to be some of this around yeah and he was so fascinating had so much to say that we didn't really spend a lot of time on his beer but i just wanted to say that i thought that this this glasgow porter was amazing i did too uh super interesting modern it's not like black it's it's kind of an it's kind of a dark dark amber i was in a dark room so it was hard to get exactly but it has this um uh as he mentioned you get the biscuity malt uh flavor you get um uh dark fruit out of it um and then the the um uh retinoise is really subtle it's there and the acid's there but it's just it it's i thought it was fan- fabulous yeah it's funny uh and we're gonna try just to th- Fix one more in here while I while I chat. Patrick's going to open up um, the Prince of Cloud and Sky, which of course we recognize immediately as a, the right? famous Baudelaire poem, the Albatross. Right. Yeah. Better in the in the original French, but you know. that's what I thought. <laughs> uh, obviously, we Google. Obviously, we just Google. We figured it must be some kind of reference, uh, maybe even a different reference, some Scottish poet, and so you might be. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, this is a Scottish dock ale. Uh, hopped with Halatau, Middlefra, and Goldings. Um, yeah, to go back to the fixed stars while you pour that out, um, I, I, what I 
discovered in that one especially, but it, it was also present in angle trisector, is that it smelled very bready. Like it poured out and I'm like, this is a Brett beer. And then you taste it and it doesn't taste very bready at all, which yeah. is an interesting thing. And I thought the Brett smell blew off fairly quickly. It did, and then, that's and then, true. And then the, the dark fruit sort of came on. Um, but I loved it. I thought it was fabulous. I thought it was really, really good. And then we tried yeah, you know, You're not a big dark beer fan. I'm not a big dark beer fan because it didn't, it wasn't like just dark roast and that sort of single single note, which I kind of complained about. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, improperly, think, but you do. Improperly, yes. I'm just not, I mean, it's, you know, smoke and roast, I'm just not as, not as in my wheelhouse in terms of a flavor palette. So, but this one, as you talked about, really recovered a lot more of the malt flavor and had this super interesting dark fruit um, as well. And then the angle trisector, we didn't even mention, it was super light, sort of straw, blonde, um, a little bit hazy, very effervescent. And um, it had this amazing um, peach. He said passion fruit is probably more like passion fruit than peach, but just that that amazing aroma. I wasn't sure whether it was uh, an ester or a... Uh, or from the hops, it turns out from this super interesting hop, and and that was also another. The Brett was more present there, a little bit of funk. Um, And if people were having a hard time understanding uh, his pronunciation, we would say Ernest was the name of that hop. Uh, Yeah. So I don't know if people were picking up on that. Yeah, so I'm going to look for that hop, because that was really interesting. Ernest. Ernest. It's my grandfather's name. Ah, even better, even more reason to. All right, (laughs) so now we're going to try this Prince of Cloud and Sky. You, you've already probably tried it, so go ahead and tell me what you think. Uh, so again, uh, the the it, it looks quite a bit like ang- angle trisector, pale in the glass. Again, you just get some booming effervescence out of these, which I think is a big uh, bonus. These these yeah. things come in little wine bottles, uh, three seventy five milliliters. Yeah. yeah, which can contain a a tremendous amount of effervescence, and he uses that of, of right. Uh, force in there yeah. so uh and i th- i think that people don't typically think of brett beers as being wonderfully effervescent like this which is another thing this this his beers are just subverting my expectations yeah that's what i would say yeah uh, this one is bright and mm. it's even though it's stronger it's a little bit more subtle yeah than the uh Angle trisector to my palate. Yeah, I think you're right. The angle trisector was came on a little strong with the with the funk what the hell acid. Are we doing here, man. Yeah. Messing oh, I'm putting table. I'm putting rings on your table. You're like my grandma. I'm like, I'm like your get grandma. me a doily, grandma. <laughs> uh, my apologies for that. I'll be more careful. Yes. Um, yeah, the bottle is sweating. Quite. Gra- grandmas know a lot. Grandma, turns out. Yeah, grandmas have a whole well. We're practically there now, so we've gained the same wisdom of our grandparents now. It's true, Old man. <laughs> had I had I had children, uh, they might be having children now. So yeah, I can no, perish the thought. Uh, okay, um, yeah, actually, this is really interesting because you know there is definitely kind of a hint of. It's less hoppy, even though is this the one that's got Nelson Sabin? No, you no, said this it's is uh, Hollow no Tau and Goldings. Oh, okay, and so I that, can taste the Hollow Tau. That does make sense because. Um, I was confusing it in my mind. He sent us four bottles, and the other one has Nelson in it. Yeah. And so I was expecting, like, ang- angle trisector, that really modern flavor. Yeah. But these are old hops, so not, not quite so modern. Yeah, but you get that lush hollow I don't know. Lush, that's all I can say. <laughs> it's uh, more much more of a an herb floral hop. Exactly, yeah, that sort of lush floral, herby sort of subtle these are really interesting beers and people should if i mean it's a year old brewery that makes small yeah batches of uh, rare beers but if you can track these down i think you'll really yeah. appreciate them they are they're definitely uh, unusual they're not like any beers i've ever had yeah and just the, amazing that beer can still surprise me i know the brett's there uh but it's it's subdued but it's definitely present and you get it especially in the in the aftertaste um for me it lingers and it's a yeah. It's with the effervescence. Uh, the Brett is. It's they're very dry beers. Um, the Brett comes across as dry, so it's a very crisp. 
refreshing beer. No. You could actually drink these things. He mentioned this in the email. You could drink these things in the summer. I'm like, I don't believe that. I had English <laughs> stock ales, and I did not want to drink those in the summer. <laughs> well, Scottish summer. But no, you can bring the, drink this in American summer uh, that's as right. well. And now probably Scottish summers are getting hot too. So, uh, But yeah, I agree 100%. These are really interesting, unique beers. They're excellent. They're super flavorful and interesting um, and worth seeking out. So... Uh, when in Glasgow, or uh, keep poking your your local beer stores fridge and see if one pops up. That's right. Uh, all right. Well, I think we should uh, wrap this up because we're getting late. Yep. So uh, a few words going out. Please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments to Jeff at BeervanaBlog.com or on Twitter and Instagram at BeervanaPod. Uh, since we're out of time, we're not going to do any uh, mailbag today, but next week we will return. Uh, Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog and tweets at Beervana. I do. Patrick tweets at Beernomics. And, and? you are... Uh semi-active on the Instagram, so good for you. Oh, yeah, every once in a while I remember that there's an Instagram. <laughs> and I pop out there. But that's, yeah, the Beer on a Pod Instagram uh, once in a while gets a little love. That's right. A little Patrick action. Yeah. All right, Jeff. Cheers. Right, Patrick. Uh, I think we both have the Prince of Cloud and Sky. We do. All right, cheers. That's Baudelaire would like. <laughs>